Welcome to the Mercy Comments podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. This patient man is my friend Joel Baker. Uh, we've known each other for, I think, almost 10 years, maybe a little longer. Uh, almost 15. See how old I am? I'm forgetting those things. Uh, Joel is on our transitioning elder team. Uh, he's a friend and he's also a great support. And I just want you to open your hearts to him. Father, thank you for this man. Uh, thank you for his gifting, uh, but thank you even more for his commitment to want to bring something from you to us. Thank you that there is innate power in your word and that we rest not on his skill and preparation, but we rest on the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Mercy Commons, it is so good to be with you. Uh, it really does feel like a privilege to be here. Um, when Nick called and said, hey, would you come and preach? Um, and said, would you come and preach out of Hebrews? I was delighted for a number of reasons. One, because um, it just is a joy to be with all of you and to worship together uh, and to see a lot of friendly faces um, here at Mercy Commons. Uh, and two, because we as a church at Southlands Brea, we went through Hebrews not too long ago. Um, and I just remember the gift that it was to our community. Um, as we spent a long while in this incredible text, just mining and looking at again and again the reality that Jesus is better than all the things we left behind when we chose to follow him. Um, and so this morning, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here and worship with you, um, excited to see friendly faces, but I'm excited to dive into the word of God and to trust that he has something to say to us this morning. Right, when we dive into the text, we don't just do it as a mental exercise, right? It's not just a thing that we're trying to master with our mind. It's actually something that we want to shape our hearts. And so this morning, I believe that there's both areas that we need to engage our minds to understand, but there are also areas that we need to allow the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts to say, maybe this thing needs to be reformed and reshaped a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to dive right into the text, um, and we're going to jump into Hebrews 7. Uh, but I want to pray before we do. I tend to do this in part just for myself, uh, but just in part to recognize that as we dive into the Word of God, we need Him, um, that we are not sufficient on our own, but we actually need God to speak to us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are here this morning, God, as your sons and daughters uh, gathered because we believe that you are who you say you are. Um, and as we jump into your, into your Word, God, uh, we want to we wanna encounter you this morning. And so, Jesus, I just ask that you give us eyes to see you in your Word this morning, Lord, that you give us ears to hear the truth of who you are, and I pray that by your spirit you would soften our hearts to respond with courage and boldness and obedience to what you ask of us, God. Um, we love you, we praise you, and um, we want to hear from you this morning, God. Amen. Well, this morning we are picking up in Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to dive into the text, and we're going to see an interesting character by the name of Melchizedek. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at Melchizedek. And so would you turn there with me? Um, I'm in the ESV, and uh, we'll start in, actually, we're going to start at the end of chapter 6. So we are in chapter 7, but I'm going to go back on what John Mark preached on last week, these last two verses of chapter 6, because they tie together. And we'll pick up in verse 19. And it says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We're going to pause there, and we'll come back to the second half of this passage in just a few moments. Uh, but... But what do we have going on here? We have this uh, moment at the end of chapter 6 that John Mark preached on that we have this anchor for our soul, the person of Jesus. The author of Hebrews is now trying to explain to the listeners why they have an anchor. Like, why is Jesus this anchor? And it's because this little line at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And at first blush, you might read that and go, I have no idea what that means. And you would certainly not be alone, because I think when I first opened this text, I said, I'm not sure I have any idea what that means. Like, what does it mean to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? And thankfully, the author dives in and, and begins to unpack that. And as we do the same, I want to actually just take a moment and frame for us and remind us why we're going to unpack this and why we're going to look at this. I listened to the first sermon of your series whenever, the two, the two couple times I've come and preached here now, I try to listen to a couple of the sermons before I show up here so I kind of know what's going on. And so I listened to the first sermon where Nick actually introduced this series. And he actually, I, know, I remember he walked you through the context of the book of Hebrews, right? That we have this unknown author writing to Jews, uh, Jewish Christians, I should say, Christians that were formerly Jews that are facing persecution and facing real pressure and are feeling temptation to return to the old things. And actually, they might go back to Judaism because there's less pressure if they do that. There's less persecution if they do that. And the author is pleading with them and is imploring them, no, 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 you have found a better thing in Jesus. That's a very simple summary of what's happening here. But the same is true here. And what I want to, and the reason I want to say that is because it's easy in a text like this to get really caught up and tied up in, well, who's Melchizedek and what's happening and what are the tithes and, and this idea of, uh, you know, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men and then the, 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 the inferior is blessed by the superior. What's happening here? And we can tie ourselves in knots here, but we have to remember the actual purpose of this passage is not Melchizedek. The purpose of this passage is Jesus. And the author of Hebrews doesn't want us to get stuck in Melchizedek. He wants us to look at Melchizedek to better understand Jesus so that we can fully appreciate who he is. Right? And so we're going to start with the question that probably many of you have. 
And there's kind of three questions I want us to look at this morning. And the first one is, who is Melchizedek? Because if we're going to understand what the author is trying to accomplish, we have to understand who Melchizedek is. And Melchizedek is this interesting figure in Scripture in that there's only a couple of verses that actually reference him. There's not all that much that is known about him. And that helps us because it means we can actually take a look and not have to spend too much time there. But there's not that many verses that are actually written about him. We see Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, right? So if you remember the story of Genesis, post-creation, Genesis 12, God calls a man by the name of Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing to all people. Just a few chapters later in Genesis 14, Abraham has been at battle with these kings and he's going to meet the king of Sodom in the valley of the kings. And in verse 18 of Genesis 14, it says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, most, of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. He's gone. He's arrived, he's here for a few verses, and he's gone. But he plays this important role because he actually is pointing and he's this foreshadowing of Jesus to come. And the author of Hebrews is helping us connect that this morning. And so who is Melchizedek? The first thing we should see is that he's a king. He's the king of Salem. And that would be translated as king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, would be translated as king of righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. As a follower of Jesus, you should probably go, wait, wait, I know someone else who's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Right? But he's not just a king. He's also a priest. It says here in, in, in Genesis 14, he was priest of God most high. So he's a king and he's a priest. And I will say to you and I, that doesn't mean all that much. It kind of sounds like he's got two jobs which, if you live in Southern California, is not that uncommon, right? But I'm going to tell you, Melchizedek is not trying to, like, pay the bills with a side hustle as a priest. He's not like, okay, my main, my main gig is being a king, and my side hustle is being a priest, and now I can pay rent. That's not what's happening. And for you and I, it's easy to go, okay, he just looks like he was busy. Like, he probably didn't have a lot of free time. But to a Jewish listener... And remember, the audience of this book in Hebrews was written to Christians who were formerly Jews. To a Jewish listener, this would be all kinds of alarm bells going off in their head going, whoa, 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 that doesn't work. You can't be a king and a priest. It's actually, it's not allowed. It's not possible. Uh, Albert Moeller, in his commentary on Hebrews, has a a quote that I think uh, will help us in this. And he says this, distinct and definitive lines were strictly drawn in Israel between the roles of the priest and the king. The priest was not to be a king and the king was not to be a priest. The tribe of Levi produced the priest and the tribe of Judah, the tribe primarily remembered as the tribe of King David, produced the kings. So to a Jewish listener, you cannot have a king who is also a priest. They come from two different tribes. A king comes from the tribe of Judah, a priest comes from the tribe of Levi, and so Melchizedek doesn't fit. And that is in some ways the crux of what the author of Hebrews wants the listeners to remember, is Melchizedek is not like the priest they have known. 
the Levitical priesthood as established in the Old Covenant, he's saying, no, no, Melchizedek isn't like that. He's a king and a priest. He doesn't fit the structure and the mold of what you've known. So we have this king who's also a priest, and he points to Jesus, right? He actually brings to Abraham, he brings what? Bread and wine. A meal that we will look at in the New Testament at the Last Supper, where Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. But here Melchizedek is thousands of years earlier bringing bread and wine to Abraham to bless him. And so Melchizedek is this kind of other, uh, I don't want to say otherworldly, but other priestly figure. He's different than the Levitical priesthood that these listeners would have known. And the author wants them to remember that. Because Jesus is a high priest, not like the Levites. He's a high priest like Melchizedek. Right? So that's who Melchizedek is. But then we want to carry on because the author wants us to move into actually saying, well, how is Jesus like Melchizedek? If Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, how is that? What does that look like? What are the similarities between Jesus and Melchizedek? And in our modern Bibles, you have these helpful headings. And you'll see before verse 11, it says, Jesus compared to Melchizedek. Right? They actually want to help us understand what's happening in this text as we transition from hearing about Melchizedek to now saying, how is Jesus like him? And so we're going to pick up in verse 11, and we'll read the rest of the chapter. Um, and so in verse 11, it says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. The authors are saying, if the law, the Levitical priesthood, if the old covenant, if it was sufficient to bring about the perfection required, then actually we would not need another priest in the order of Melchizedek. We would just need another priest in the order of Aaron. We just need another Levitical priest. But actually we need a different kind of priest, right? And the Jews would have known this because they've been waiting for the Messiah, they have known from the very beginning that the old covenant was not sufficient. It was always looking to the Messiah. And so the author just reminded them, the law is not sufficient on its own. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. So again, the author is saying the law was insufficient. And when you change priests, not just like one priest to another, but when you change from the Levitical priesthood to a priest in the order of Melchizedek, it means that actually like the structure of the covenant and the law that that priest represents is being changed. And so he's just saying, no, 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 Jesus doesn't fit the mold. Jesus wasn't born in the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. Right? He came from the household of David, and that's the tribe of Judah. So he's saying Jesus didn't fit the mold to be a priest. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. 
For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to him, near to God through him, since he, has, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So how is Jesus similar to Melchizedek? The first and clearest way that the author is trying to make sure these listeners understand is that he doesn't fit the mold, right? He is not a Levite. He was not born from the tribe of Levi. He has no claim to be a priest. But yet he is, right? And the author quotes Psalm 110 saying, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So Jesus, who has no claim by birth to be a priest, has become a high priest forever, But Jesus is also king, right? The New Testament is full of language talking about Jesus as king and Jesus as priest. The only other time in all of Scripture we see that is in the person of Melchizedek. It's the one other moment in Scripture we see a king who's also a priest of the Most High God is Melchizedek. And that is the crux of how Jesus is similar to him. He is both king forever and he is priest forever. And the author wants them to understand that actually going back to the old system, going back to the old covenant, and going back to the the Levitical priesthood would be a massive step backwards, not forward. Right? Remember, the purpose of this passage is to actually point them to Jesus and to remind them that Jesus is better than what they had left behind. And why would you go back to a Levitical priest who you know is insufficient, the law is unable to bring about perfection when you've encountered the, the priest, the, the high priest forever in the person of Jesus. That's what the author wants them to understand. The author also connects in, in Hebrews 7 this idea that we have kind of no knowledge of Melchizedek's uh, genealogy. Right? It says he has no father or mother um, at the end of verse uh, th- or in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Right? So in in a similar way to Melchizedek, right, who just kind of shows up on the scene and then he's gone, and we have no recorded history of him dying, of the end of him serving as king or priest, Jesus reigns forever. Right? Now, you can get into all kinds of theological debate, and believe me, as I've studied for this sermon there are lots of scholars who do, about what does that mean? Did, did, did Melchizedek just appear? 
Was he like a manifestation of, of Christ in the Old Testament? Did he actually live forever? Was there really no end? We don't know. And that's actually not the point of this passage. The author isn't trying to get him bogged down there. He's just saying, remember, this Melchizedek figure points us to Jesus. So Melchizedek was priest and king. Jesus is priest and king. And he's a, he's a priest that doesn't fit the mold. And he's actually replacing the old covenant with this new covenant. Right? And in verse 22, the author says, Jesus is therefore a, the guarantor of a better covenant. So why would you go back to the old one? So we covered the first two questions. And I want us to look at the third. So the first question was, who is Melchizedek? The second question is, how is Jesus similar to Melchizedek? And the third question um, that's going to pop up there in a moment is going to be, how is Jesus better? Right? Because we don't just need a priest like Melchizedek. We need a better priest, right? And I want to... I kind of propose to you that there's, I mean, there's three ways in this passage that we see that Jesus is better. And the first one is that Jesus is an eternal priest. And this is actually saying, no, 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 the Levitical priesthood, they, every Levitical priest died. Every priest that these Jewish Christians would have known in their life had died. All of them. They all died. A new one would need to be installed and generation to generation to generation, one after another. But Jesus is priest forever, right? So there's no more priest needed when you get to Jesus. That's how he's better than, than the earthly Levitical priest, is he's eternal. But he's not just eternal, he's perfect, right? And this is what the author is trying to get at the end of the passage in verses like really 23 to 28. The author is trying to unpack for them that Jesus is better than the Levitical priest because he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins, Right, so I want you to imagine you're a first century Jewish uh, individual, and you sin. You're aware of your sin, and you come to the priest, so the priest might offer a sacrifice to atone for your sin. Well, that priest has also sinned. And that priest, I just want you to imagine, right, it's kind of you come and you're like, okay, I got I to offer this sacrifice for my sin. And the priest is like, hold on, I got to finish my own first. I'll get to you in a minute, but i got to finish my own sacrifice for my own sin. That only inspires so much confidence, right? You go, well, why is this guy doing the sacrifices if he also is, like, he's just like I am. He's sinful just like me. Why is he doing the, why is he the one doing the sacrifices? Oh, he was born in the tribe of Levi. But Jesus isn't like that. When we come to Jesus with our sin, he's not like, hold on, i got to deal with my own first, and then I'll get to yours. No, 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 he's going, no, no, I'm the king of righteousness. There's no sin in me. I don't need to offer a sacrifice for my sin. I can just receive you, and I can say, bring your sin to me, and I can atone for it. There is no need in Jesus to atone for sin in himself. And that is wildly different than what these Jewish Christians would have known in the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is the perfect priest without sin, Right, you think about the high priest. I was thinking about this this week as I was prepping for this. The high priest, right, once a year would go into the Holy of Holies. And they would do so with, like, fear, and like, real fear and trembling. We sometimes talk about, like, entering into God's presence with fear and trembling. They actually did. They did in such a way that they tied a rope around their ankle in case they died and they had to be, like, pulled back out, right? Jesus enters with no fear. He's sinless. 
He's righteous. He has full access. It's, it's his. He wa- That's the kind of high priest I want. I don't want the high priest going, I hope the sacrifices were enough. But maybe not. Tie two ropes. It's been a rough year. Right? We don't want that kind of high priest. No, no, no. We want a high priest that we know can enter the, with confidence because he's sinless. And the author is saying, no, no, no. Believers, don't forget that Jesus isn't like the earthly priest that you've known. It's not like you're just trading one idea for another. The old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, is not comparable to the person of Jesus and the new covenant that he's established. And he's telling them, don't go back. These aren't equivalent ideas. It's not like you just trade one good idea for another. You have the perfect priest. Why would you go back to these sinful men who need to offer sacrifices for themselves? And finally, he's not just eternal, he's not just perfect, but he gives us access. And this is, I want to say, one of the key differences for these uh, Jewish Christians that would be listening to this letter in the first century. He gives them access. Right? In this passage, in verse 19, it says, On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For us, that's kind of a throwaway line. It's kind of like, yeah, I just draw near to God. If you've grown up in the church, that's kind of an idea you've probably been told from the the time you were really little. I talk about with our kids all the time, like, we can talk to God. We can come into his presence. But for Jewish Christians in the first century, that wouldn't have been what they had known. They couldn't draw near to God. Right? The priest offered sacrifices to atone for their sin, but those sacrifices did not allow them to go into the presence of God. They still did not have access fully to God. Their sins would be atoned for with these sacrifices, but God was still distant. Right? He was still in the holy of holies. He was still in the holy place, and they couldn't come into his presence. It wasn't allowed. But actually, now we can. And if, you, if I had to boil down the, the, the crux of why is Jesus a better priest, it's because he gives us access to God. He doesn't simply mediate between us and God. He doesn't simply atone for our sins and say, okay, your sins have been forgiven. No, no, no. He welcomes us into, his, into God's presence. And that's so different. It's not just, hey, your sins are forgiven. Go. No, no, no. It's, it's come. Come to me. Be in my presence. Be with me. And these Jewish Christians would have grown up in the Levitical priesthood where that was not an option to them. And the author wants them to remember that's the gift to following Jesus, is that actually under this new covenant, he gives you access to God. Why would you give that up? Why would you walk away from that? That's better than anything you've known before. And I want to say, Mercy Commons, the same is true for you and me. That the fact that we have access to God is better than anything we've known before. I don't know what you've left behind to follow Jesus, but I promise you that access into God's presence is better than whatever it was. It's better than whatever it was. You get to draw near to God. N.T. Wright talks about this in his commentary on Hebrews and 
Uh, it's a bit of a longer, longer quote, but I think it just beautifully kind of summarizes and, and speaks to this truth that we find here. The point of the present passage is that the long list of, Levitic, of Levitical priests who ministered both in the original wilderness tabernacle and then in the temple in Jerusalem was not like that list of clergy who served in a was like that list of clergy who served in a particular church. They all held office for a while, and eventually they died. There had been plenty of them. There had to be plenty of them from generation to generation. But Jesus, by sharp contrast, continues as a priest forever. Once you reach him, the list comes to a stop. No more are needed, nor is this a mere historical or theological curiosity. As with everything else our writer says about Jesus' priesthood, this point is there to reinforce the assurance that we can have through him. Jesus, the one who died for us and rose again, always lives to make intercession for his people, for those who come to God through him. I want you to listen to this. No need to go any other route. In fact, no other route carries any promise of success. Jesus himself is the unique human road into the very presence of God. When we get there, we can rest since our access to God in the first place and our welcome when we arrive is guaranteed forever. Right, so this high priest, Jesus, he welcomes us into the presence of God. And the good news that you and I have is that that will never end because he lives forever. It will never end. The access that he gives us, it does not end. Because Jesus lives forever. We can enter into his presence and we can rest because we know that our access is guaranteed. And as I, as I, I've read this text a lot this week. And as I read through this, I got to this point that I normally do when I spend a lot of time in any sort of biblical text. And I asked, I get to this point where I ask my most theologically astute question. And it is the question, so what? I come to a point where I go, I go, so what? Like, so what do I do with this? So what does this mean to me? Right? I feel like I, I dive into a text and I go, okay, I understand the context and the history and what's happening. So what? I'm not a first century Jewish Christian who's facing persecution. I'm not feeling in danger of walking away back to the Levitical priesthood. So what? And if you're sitting here this morning going, so what, Joel? I think you're asking a great theological question. <laughs> and I want to say, so what? What do we do with that? Is that we need to recognize that we may not face the same tensions that these early Christians would have faced. We may not be sitting here, I don't know, maybe some of you are from a Jewish background. I am not. I don't actually feel some draw to go back to the Levitical priesthood. I don't go, hey, the old covenant's feeling pretty good. I knew that one. And it, 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 there was less persecution, less pressure. But if we're honest, I think most of us would say that we feel some measure of more pressure following Jesus than we did a decade ago. It might be just societal pressure. It may not be physical persecution, but it might be the way that your coworkers look at you when they hear that you believe in Jesus. And you go, that's changed. Ten years ago, it didn't feel like people responded quite as strongly. It might be that uh, the cost to follow Jesus as far as you in your friend group has suddenly become a bit more costly than it was a decade ago. And so we have to be realistic that actually we're not immune from pressures that want to push us away from Jesus. I think I like to think that I am, but, I, but we're not. 
there are pressures that are on us that cause us to want to think differently about who Jesus is, that cause us to want to think differently about, uh, you know, maybe there's a better way or a different way. And I want to say this morning, the so what of this is that we need to look in our own hearts and say, where am I feeling pressure to wander? Where am I feeling pressure to say, maybe there's a different way to do this whole thing? And instead, we need to say, no, no, this word, the truth of Scripture, reveals the high priest forever who gives me access to God. And I can't walk away from that. And the reality is I know that the, our worlds are just full of noise, voices and opinions and input that are telling you, are you sure? Are you sure about Jesus? Aren't, aren't those teachings a little bit outdated? Doesn't that doesn't seem a little closed-minded to follow Jesus in 2023? I feel like I hear those things all the time. I feel like most people I talk to when they find out I'm a pastor go, oh, you're, you're still doing that thing, huh? Isn't that... People still do that? People still believe that? And these voices can actually be voices that say, hey, there's a different way. Just think a little differently about Jesus. Think a little bit differently about how you live in society and how you, how you hold truth. And actually, I believe that what we need is to go, no, no, no. I have encountered the high priest forever, the better high priest who gives me direct access to God. Why would I walk away from that? Why would I let go of this to go trust that Instagram or TikTok influencer who's got some workshop they're running and I'm going to go trust that over this? No, no, this reveals the high priest forever. And I don't say this to you saying that I have this mastered. About 10 days ago, Deleted Twitter off my phone. X. X, yeah. I'm still protesting that decision. Um, and the reason being is that I began to recognize, not that, I mean, mostly what I follow on Twitter is like either, that's a lot of sports. Full disclosure, a lot of sports. Um, and news. And I had this thing in my mind that was telling me if I am informed enough on this device then actually I'll know perfectly how to respond to every situation. And so I found myself going, no, 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 I just need to have a little more information on what's happening, and then I'll know how to respond perfectly. I felt that God say, like, I've already given you the information you need. It's right here. Like, why don't you spend a little less time on Twitter and a little more time in here, and maybe you'll know how to respond. Right? I felt like God speak to me and say, actually, this thing, this, this little easy, simple lie that actually information will help you has begun to lead you to where you're trusting, in your, you're trusting in your knowledge of world events. You're trusting in your knowledge of cultural things over the word of God. And so I removed Twitter from my phone and it's been delightful. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Uh, it's really been great. Um, but the thing is, I've had to say, no, 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 my trust is going to be in the word of God. Because I've, I've discovered the high priest forever who gives me access to God. Why would I want to walk away from that? And so Mercy Commons, as we land, I want to pray for you and I want to, I want to challenge you a bit. Because maybe for you it is Twitter or X, maybe it is something else. But I think when we look at a text like this, 
it's far too easy to detach and to kind of disassociate ourselves and go, well, I'm not in that situation that those Jewish Christians were in. But actually, I think each one of us needs to come before God this morning and say, God, where am I feeling the temptation and the pressure and the desire to go a different way? And actually, how do I this morning to be reminded and to realign my heart with the high priest forever, Jesus, who gives us access to God? And so I'm going to pray for us, and I just want you to reflect on that as we respond in worship. Jesus, this morning, I just want to say, God, that we're grateful. Well, there are moments where approaching a text like this, it's so, it's so difficult to even, to even imagine what it'd be like to be in these Jewish Christians' shoes 2,000 years ago. And part of the reason that it feels so difficult is that I've, I've had the privilege of walking with you for a long time. And that in and of itself, God, is a gift. It's a privilege to know you. Um, and so Jesus, this morning, I just want to say that we're, we're grateful. Those of us who have encountered you as the, the great high priest, the king forever, the high priest that will reign and will serve forever, who is constantly, eternally living to make intercession for us, we are grateful that we can come before you. And Jesus, we want our hearts to be soft to respond to the truth of your word. And Lord, we know that there are many voices that are calling to us in this this current day. Many voices in, in the world and the surrounding culture that are calling us saying, no, no, there's a different way, there's a better way. And Jesus, I want to pray that you would help us to hold fast to the truth of your word. That we don't need a new way. We found the perfect way. We don't need a new approach. We found the perfect Savior. So Jesus, would you help us to cling fast to your word? let our hearts be soft to go, this thing's not helping me. I'm going to push that away. I'm going to let that die. The word that was brought this morning about letting things die, Jesus, I just pray that people would let these things that are leading them astray, let them die. Let those things die. Say, no, 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 I found Jesus. He's better. Why would I ever leave him? We love you, Jesus. We trust you. Amen. The priest of Melchizedek brought bread and wine uh, as a blessing. Jesus became bread and wine for our salvation eternally with perfection we have full access to him and we're going to do something that the church has done for over 2,000 years and we're going to remember that truth and that reality that we have a perfect eternal priest that gives us access because of his shed blood and broken body and if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to go to the table. There's three. The one in the front here has wine. I want to invite you to take the elements, bring them back to your chair, and we'll take communion together. One of the reminders that I want to give is that unlike the Jewish Christians that believe they had to jump through all of these hoops, it's a very, very simple way to have the Savior come and give you access to God. The Bible says clearly that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
It's that simple. You might be here wondering all of these things. I'm not sure how they make sense. I'm, I'm not sure what's happening. I, I haven't heard these things before, and I don't even know how to pronounce Melchizedek. If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is that simple. And you can take communion as a new creation, as someone that will live for eternity in the presence of God, as a son and daughter of the living God. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you, knowing the next day that his body would literally be broken on that cross for us, for our healing emotionally, physically, and spiritually. This is the broken body of Jesus for you. took a cup and he said this is the blood of a new covenant we know that this is the blood that speaks a better word we know that this is blood that is eternal shed once for all we know that the blood that was scattered on the mercy seat year after year for the day of atonement will never need to be scattered again because it was poured out for us for our freedom the penalty of our sins paid for the power of us and broken blood of Jesus. I want to encourage you if you want to receive prayer or ministry, if there's a sense in which those voices are becoming very, very loud, in which you are being invited by God to just a new season of saying, God, I, I wanna I wanna shut those voices out. We wanna encourage you. We have leaders on my left to your right to pray with you. If you're going through anything else that you would like to receive prayer for, that's why God has made us part of a body. We are his. We are his because of the precious blood of Jesus. Let's go out in the power of the Spirit. Let's go out there and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.